0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dayson Digest. Um, my name is Cameron Griffith. I am one of the PGY2-ID pharmacy residents at the University of Kentucky.
1: And I'm Becca Bruning, um, another one of the PGY2 infectious diseases pharmacy residents. So we're excited to take on this episode 60 of the Dayson Digest and, and discuss um, a very relevant article that's been kind of blown up on, on Twitter.
0: So today we were going to be reviewing the hydrocortisone in severe community-acquired pneumonia um, by Daquin and colleagues, and this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on March 21st of 2023.
1: So obviously community-acquired pneumonia, or CAP as we'll probably refer to it throughout the podcast, is definitely one of our major public health issues. It's a very common stewardship issue that I'm sure many of the pharmacist physicians are really focused on optimizing the treatment for. Um, so some of the stats that they mentioned is that it's one of the most common disease states that prompts hospital admission in almost 1.5 million adults annually in the US. And in 2019, this was the ninth leading cause of death from infection in the US. So definitely very pertinent and very relevant, um, not only high morbidity and mortality associated with, with it, but a high uh, propensity for stewardship intervention as well. Um, so Kim, what's kind of the thought process and some of the data that supports the use of glucocorticoids in pneumonia?
0: So um, for our glucocorticoid steroids, um, the thought is to mitigate the consequences of pneumonia um, due to their powerful anti-inflammatory, and immunomodulated, activities. Um, There's been several um, randomized controlled trials showing positive effects of glucocorticoids for CAB. Um, There is also a meta-analysis, including six randomized controlled trials that showed a reduced time to clinical um, stabilization and decreased hospital length of stay. Um, However, there was no improvement in mortality in these patients. Another meta-analysis included open-label trials um, that showed increased risk of bias and suggested that glucocorticoid steroids reduce mortality in patients with severe CAB um, with moderate quality evidence.
1: So, that's really what prompted uh, this study to be performed. So, the authors conducted what's called the Cape Cod study. So, this is community acquired pneumonia evaluation according to the steroids study and they really wanted to evaluate whether early treatment with hydrocortisone reduced mortality at 28 days among patients that were admitted to the ICU for severe community-acquired pneumonia. So how did they design this study?
0: So this was a double-blind randomized control superiority trial. Um, This was conducted um, around over 30 um, French medical centers. Um, specifically by members of Clinical Research and Intensive Care and Sepsis Trial Group um, for Global Evaluation and Research in Sepsis. So, Becca, who was included in this trial?
1: So, their inclusion criteria was adults, so greater than or equal to 18-year-old uh, patients that were admitted, they specifically say to the ICU for severe cap. Um, looking further at some of the supplemental data, in the inclusion criteria specified there, they did um, also include patients that were admitted to intermediate care units, which would be maybe something more like an acute or progressive care unit. So not just the ICU. So a little um, contradictory there with some of that inclusion criteria. They diagnosed CAP by uh, patients having at least two of the following. So they wanted there to be presence of cough, purulent sputum, chest pain, or dyspnea. And then they defined severe CAP as those that were mechanically ventilated with a PEEP um, greater than or equal to five centimeters of water, Um, or they could have had high flow nasal cannula with a a PaO2 to FiO2 ratio less than 300 and being on uh, FiO2 greater than or equal to 50% They also included those that may have used non-rebreather masks with that same uh, PaO2 to FiO2 ratio less than 300, and also those that had a pulmonary severity index score, so PSI score greater than 130. And some of the notable exclusion criteria were patients that had a do-not-intubate order, those that had concomitant influenza, um, those that were um, being treated or diagnosed with septic shock, so requiring vasopressor use for their possible infectious etiology, and then also those with the clinical history of aspiration of gastric content as well. So, Cam, what's the intervention that this study kind of looked at?
0: So, this study utilized hydrocortisone as a two hundred milligram IV continuous infusion. This was done consecutively for four days. Um, And then on the fourth day, um, the team that was treating the patients um, came together to decide if patients were going to have short duration of eight days or a long prolonged duration of 14 days of hydrocortisone. And Um, and the way they did this is they would say, um, so for instance, a patient who was getting 14 days of treatment, they would have the hydrocortisone 200 milligrams um, for seven days total, and then they would start to taper it after that seventh day. So, on day week, these patients would have a hundred milligrams of hydrocortisone. After four consecutive days of the hundred milligrams, they would then taper down to fifty milligrams daily for three additional days, um, and then from there they would be able to stop the hydrocortisone. For patients who are in the short duration of eight days, patients would receive the hydrocortisone 200 milligrams for a total of four days. And then on days um, five and six, they would receive hydrocortisone 100 milligrams continuously. And then on days seven and eight, they would receive 50 milligrams. And after the last, on um, day, after day eight, they would stop the steroid So Becca, with looking at this trial, what were the outcomes this study was assessing?
1: So, the primary outcome that they investigated was death from any cause by day 28. They had pretty extensive secondary outcomes. So, they also looked at death from any cause by day 90, length of ICU stay, non invasive ventilation or endotracheal intubation among patients that were not receiving ventilation at baseline. They also looked at vasopressor therapy, ventilator free days. Basopressor free days, um, changes in their PAO2 to FIO2 ratio, changes in their SOFA score, and then also their quality of life by day 90 based on this 36 item short form health survey. They also looked at some different safety criteria as well. So they looked at secondary infections by day 28, uh, gastrointestinal bleeding by day 28, the daily amount of insulin that was administered by day seven and also weight gain by day seven. And we won't go into too much detail about the statistics, but we did want to note that um, they did put some calculations that they used based on what they thought would be required to detect 80% power based on a 25% um, mortality rate by day 28. And just wanted to note that the the they mentioned that the trial did stop um, early after their secondary interim analysis um, kind of due to onset of COVID-19, which was kind of interfering with the trial. Um, And so they technically did not meet power for this study. And we'll also see that their outcomes, they had a very different incidence of mortality than than what they might have predicted. So we'll go ahead and dive into some of the results. So so hit us with the high points, Cam.
0: The study um, was conducted for about four and a half years. So from October 2015 to March 2020, which of course is when the the COVID-19 pandemic hit, um, they did assess um, almost 6,000 patients for inclusion into the trial. Um, However, there was ultimately only 800 patients that were truly included into the trial. Um, 795 patients was part of their analysis, but 400 patients in the hydrocortisone group and then 395 patients in the placebo group. Uh, the study did enroll um, patient population that mostly consisted of our elderly patients who were males. Um, and then, one question I had for you, Becca, was. Did you notice any notable differences in the baseline characteristics for demographics?
1: Yeah, the, the authors did note that there was a pretty small overall percentage of immunocompromised patients. And so in general, there may be a lower general generalizability for those patient populations. So just something to note there. And then um, just looking at some of the charts that they include, the placebo group did have about 19 more patients that were diagnosed with COPD and also 12 more patients that had the severe CAP uh, qualifier of having the pneumonia severity index that was greater than 130, having them fall into that class five, which is associated with increased risk of mortality. So a couple of differences there worth noting, especially as um, we'll talk a little bit more, but um, when we think of COPD, exacerbations. Steroids can be used as part of the, the treatment plan for that as well. Um, so what did you think about the primary outcome, Cam?
0: So for this study, the primary outcome again was the mortality of all-cause mortality in these patients at day 28. Um, so in the hydrocortisone group, there is only 6.2% of patients who had mortality at day 28. Um, however, that was almost doubled in the placebo group at 11.9%. Um, and this was statistically significant and also clinically um, like we definitely do not want to have our patients in the receiving group having almost double the mortality of patients who have an intervention. But there was just one thing with this um, primary outcome, technically they didn't report um, exactly what would, what the cause of these deaths were, so any patients that they didn't have records of um, as as far as like follow-up, they went ahead and included them as having mortality, taking more of this conservative approach in these patients. And then additionally, mortality was lower than anticipated. Um, The estimated mortality was 27% based on prior data. Um, So it was really surprising that not only in the hydrocortisone group, but also in the placebo group, that the mortality, mortality rate was pretty low. Um, but even significantly lower in the hydrocortisone group. Becca, how did you feel about one of the secondary outcomes?
1: Yeah, I and mean, I think it's just important to note again with the mortality that they did exclude patients with septic shock, and so um, we're not considering patients that required vasopressors, and um, we'll talk a little bit more about surviving sepsis guidelines, but just thinking again, there's maybe another indication where patients qualify for steroids that we already have evidence for. So um, that could also be where some of the mortality estimations were a little bit off. Um, But for some of their secondary outcomes, even looking at the mortality that extended out to to 90 days, um, it was still statistically significantly lower in the hydrocortisone group at 9.3% of patients compared to 14.7% of patients in the placebo group. Um, They also looked at, like I have mentioned, the cumulative incidence of endotracheal intubation and mechanical ventilation, um, which were statistically significantly lower in the hydrocortisone group for both of those outcomes. So what about some of the safety and adverse event outcomes, Tim?
0: So um, one of the safety outcomes they looked at was the ICU-required infections, um, that was pretty was a little bit higher in the placebo group compared to the hydrocortisone group. So in the placebo group, there was eleven point one percent these ICU required infections compared to nine point eight percent in the hydrocortisone group. Additionally, um, overall GI bleeds were really rare in both of these cohorts. Um, and then they, the study also looked at the median daily insulin requirement by day seven for these patients. As we know, our steroids can increase or have transient increases of hyperglycemia. Um, So it's really important that we try to manage these patients correctly with insulin to start to have this hyperglycemia. Um, But in the hydrocortisone group, there's about a median dose of 35.5 units. Um, versus 20.5 units in the receiving group. However, they did not evaluate the reversibility of the hyperglycemia um, once, you know, patients were off the thyroid zone. They also did not state um, exactly how high these patients' um, blood glucoses were. Um, so just another thing to note while thinking of this article. Becca, did you see anything Notable within these supplemental
1: data. Yeah. So as is the case with with a lot of these major trials, they're evaluating so much data that most of it doesn't really fit into the the primary article. So they do have a really large supplementary index that I encourage all of you to look at. Um, and from what we saw in there, they you know again just some notable uh, things for this patient population when we're considering possible um, ARDS, or acute respiratory distress syndrome, they did permit some supplemental treatment like sedatives, um, proning, inhaled nitric oxide and ECMO, but they did not allow any corticosteroids. So when we think about like our DEXA-ARDS trial that is frequently uh, implemented to use dexamethasone in these patients, that was not permitted. And they also did not permit any use of neuromuscular blockers. that would maybe assist with proning. I know that's done sometimes um, if those patients are hard to move or or have some uh, resistance to the proning mechanism in general. So so those are just some notable things that um, they did not necessarily permit. They also gave some more data about the specific pathogens and the specific treatments as well. So the um, nearly half of these patients did not have any organism identified, which I think we kind of expected, right? A lot of um, the IDSA guidelines even mentioned, you know, especially for patients that aren't mechanically ventilated, we don't need to get sputum cultures, don't necessarily need to get blood cultures. And so, not being able to identify an organism, a lot of these patients, I think, is is pretty predictable. Um, we did see the most um, streptococcus pneumoniae, and then uh, also a decent amount of lesionella, which I wasn't necessarily expecting. Um, And then they also mentioned staph aureus as the kind of number three organism, did not necessarily tell us whether this was MSSA or MRSA. And there were eight more patients in the placebo group that had staph aureus as well. So just a little bit of a notable difference there. Um, From there, we see some of our other gram negatives uh, like Haemophilus and influenza, E. coli, a little bit of Pseudomonas and also some coagulase-negative staph mixed in there, too. Cam, what did you think about the antimicrobials that they used and, and the, the information that they gave us in the supplemental about that?
0: Yeah, so overall, um, the most common antibiotic given was a third-generation Cycosporin, um, which is likely to be expected, especially from my clinical experience when I've seen in our hospital. Um, additionally, macrolides were given um, oftentimes in combination um, with these. And then our next agents are going to be amoxicillin or augmentin that were given. Um, overall, it looks like more patients in the um, hydrocortisone group actually received amoxicillin or augmentin compared to um, the placebo group. Um, so about 18 patients had. Amoxicillin well more amoxicillin prescriptions. Um, and about 10 patients had more on the prescriptions in the um hydrocortisone group compared to um, which really, if you look at what we're growing um with the being mostly obstructococcus pneumonia, um typically we are not using amoxicillin um as our first line therapy. Um however, third generation central is also an appropriate in parent- just a little bit um, differences there when it comes to treatment, and they also did note that fluoroquinolones were used about the same in both um, cohorts. And then there is another category of just other antibiotics. Um, so they didn't go in depth on exactly what those other antibiotics might be. Um, however, it's likely that these may have been in combination. Um, it's also important to note that these antibiotics listed here are not definitive treatments. Um, They're just um, some of the impaired agents the patients got uh, while being
1: Yeah, so probably not as much data about the antimicrobials as us ID pharmacists would like to see. A little tough not seeing uh, any delineation of anti-pseudomonal or anti-MRSA agents either, as we know there's some of those risk factors that, that can factor into um, what our guidelines kind of recommend, uh, especially within the IDSA, but thinking about patients that um, are less severe in their cap or non-severe inpatient admissions, the third generation cephalosporins and amoxicillin kind of follow that um, the the pattern that we would we would think of. So again, we're seeing maybe a less severe population than than we probably anticipated. Based on these antimicrobials as well, um, and I guess just going into that discussion, the the 2019 IDSA CAP guidelines do recommend the use of steroids in severe CAP with refractory shock, but they specifically rem- reference that sur- the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines and and kind of mention the hydrocortisone 50 milligram every six hour dosing scheme that we're probably more accustomed to here in the U.S. I know. Um, when I was reading why, you know, why they specifically chose 200 milligrams or why they specifically chose a continuous infusion, um, it's definitely not something that, that I think we've seen very often in our practice. So, um, and they even say in the article that there's not necessarily evidence to support one dosing um, regimen or administration technique over another. Um, so just kind of something to think about there. And then, of course, part of the buzz on Twitter about this as well is because of the recent European Society update for their pneumonia guidelines as well. Kim, do you want to tell us a little bit about what those say?
0: These guidelines are pretty consistent with the IDC guidelines, um, but this is specifically looking at severe CAP. Um, And within these guidelines, they specifically recommend steroids um, with severe CAP in patients who present with the second shot. Um, again, not there's no routine recommendation on giving patients without shot to present with a severe cap of steroids at this time. Um, and they recommend using necropenicillin in these patients. And then additionally, there's also the 2023 Gold Guidelines. Um, we decided to include this just because there was a decent amount of patients who had um, COPD as one of their the diagnosis. Um, and additionally, there were more patients, again, in the uh, placebo group that had to be, um, compared to the hydrocortis. And within these guidelines, they do recommend um, using prednisone 40 milligrams daily for five days. Um, you could also use prednisolone um, as an equivalent. Um, but the, basically, steroid therapy is indicated for patients who have um, severe life-threatening or non-life-threatening COPD exacerbations. And as we know, um, especially with patients who have some underlying COPD, pneumonia can cause COPD exacerbation. Um, so it's just kind of interesting that for a patient with patients having COPD um, in the well, more often in the placebo group compared to the hydrocortisone group, but also kind of deferring. Um, steroid use in these patients at first um, was really surprising to me, um, and maybe could skew the results.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely could be considered one one aspect of the standard of care in the treatment of COPD patient when they have some of these respiratory symptoms and and could qualify as, as having a potential exacerbation. So definitely think that that's worth noting. Um, I think one of the other things we wanted to point out with the design is um you know we think as pharmacists about all the negative consequences of using steroids of course there are benefits but um it's really unclear why the intended duration was maybe pretty prolonged in a way uh, either 8 to 14 days and then they did in the supplemental have some some charts that indicated that patients really only ended up getting either 5 or 6 days depending on on what group they were in so really Very few patients probably completed the full course of therapy. And that also um, could have been because this therapy was stopped if patients were discharged from the ICU. Um, And so patients were very often discharged from the ICU prior to that 14-day mark. Anything else you think we should add for this, Cam?
0: No, Becca, I think that's all. So I guess we'll kind of go with our conclusions now. So my personal conclusion of this, I feel like this... Um, article overall just adds to this mixed benefit and also risk um, when it comes to corticoid steroid use in our patients with severe CAP. Again, I think we, as far as the literature goes, you know, we have the support for using it in patients with septic shock, but I still think at this time we still need more evidence and even better studies, not saying this wasn't a good study, um, but in general i think we so need more data to support the use of routinely recommending steroids in patients with severe CAP.
1: yeah i definitely agree i think we you know tried to point out some of the areas like septic shock with COPD exacerbations if it's severe enough to where they have ARDS um, those are really indications where we feel more compelled to use steroids and so this data just seems like the patients really were a lot less severe, um, as well than, than what we maybe expected. And so that could be why, why it's less compelling. We really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to this. Um, our first run at one of the Dacent Digest podcast. We'll be back in about two weeks for the next one. So thanks so much guys.
0: Thank you all.